Okonkwo and his family worked very hard to plant a new farm. But it was like beginning life anew without the vigor and enthusiasm of youth, like learning to become left-handed in old age. Work no longer had for him the pleasure it used to have. And when there was no work to do, he sat in a silent half-sleep. His life had been ruled by a great passion to become one of the lords of the clan. That had been his life's spring, and he had all but achieved it. Then everything had been broken. He had been cast out, out of his clan, like a fish onto a dry, sandy beach, panting. Clearly, his personal god, or chief, was not made for great things. A man could not rise beyond the destiny of his chief. The saying of the elders was not true, that if a man said, yeah, his chief also affirmed. Here was a man whose chief had said no, despite his own affirmation. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Chinua Chévez' Things Fall Apart. Yes, we're finally in my home continent. And the one that I grew up in. Yay. (laughs) And actually, you're more legit because you grew up in West Africa. I'm in South Africa. We also talked to two experts, Wemui Mbao and Terry Ochaga. At the start of the episode, we heard a clip of Chinua Achebe himself reading from Things Fall Apart, which comes from a webcast by the U.S. Library of Congress's Center for the Book. Okay, I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Chinua Achebe. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. So, Erica, tell us about Chinua Achebe. Regarded by many as the father of modern African literature, Chinua Achebe was born on the 16th of November 1930 in Ogidi in southeastern Nigeria. He was christened Albert Chinua Lumogo Achebe by his parents. His home was full of stories, mainly told by his mother and his sister. At 14, he went to the prestigious government college school at Umuahia, where he was an excellent student and became part of an emerging Nigerian intelligentsia. Although he won a scholarship to study medicine at the institution now called the University of Ibadan, he switched after a year to English literature. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, he began publishing essays and stories in student magazines. After his studies, he moved to Lagos and began working for the Nigerian Broadcasting Service. Things Fall Apart was his first novel. It was published in 1958 by Heinemann. Three years later, in 1961, he married Christy Chinwe Okoli, with whom he had four children. In 1962, Things Fall Apart became the first of Heinemann's iconic African writers series. Achebe himself was the series' founding editor, and so played a major role in bringing new African writing to the world's attention. Achebe would go on to publish collections of short stories and poetry, children's books, essays, and four more novels, including No Longer at Ease, Arrow of God, and Antils of the Savannah. He was awarded over 30 honorary doctorates, but he never won the Nobel Prize for Literature, He didn't seem too perturbed by this because he said it was a European prize and not Hmm. an African one. He died on the 21st of March, 2013 in Boston at the age of 82. Okay, Cat Corner, 
<laughs> There's very little information on how Chinua Achebe felt about cats or dogs. They do make appearances in proverbs and stories within mm. his stories. But I found another interesting thing, which is the professor Taban Lo Leong, who once wrote an essay where he compared different writers to dogs and cats, saying that the ones that were awarded the Nobel Prize were often like barking dogs. And he contrasts them with the self or literature loving cats, because cats don't pander to human love, he said. So this is a quotation about Achebe from this essay. Chinua Achebe, who wrote the English language like an African language, was left out. This African arch moralist did not wag his tail. He hunched his back like the regal cat he is. Alicia, what is Things Fall Apart about? And what's the story behind it? As we've just heard, Things Fall Apart is Chinua Achebe's first novel, and it was published in 1958. Achebe was 28 at that time. Apparently, years earlier, while at Ibadan, Achebe had read Joyce Carey's novel, Mr. Johnson, and been utterly appalled by its representation of Nigerians. Things Fall Apart would offer a much richer, more dignifying portrayal. The book has been heralded, as Terry Ochiaga tells us, as, quote, the inaugural moment of modern African fiction, end quote. First published by William Heinemann in London, the novel drew great attention internationally and in Nigeria. Things Fall Apart is the most widely read African novel in the world. It has been translated into over 60 languages and has sold over 12 million copies. This is a story about the clash of civilizations as British colonial powers infiltrate Nigeria. It is set in the 1890s and centers on the character Okonkwo. We first meet Okonkwo as a boy growing up under the shame and lack that resulted from his own father's laziness. Driven by a fear of failure and dishonor, he works his way into positions of honor. He becomes an Igbo warrior and a man of high standing in his clan, the Umofia. The same fear that motivates his tireless labor and bravery leads to an accrual of titles, wealth, and wives. Yet in a less winning moment, it motivates him to land the final blow of a machete on a boy that he has raised for three years. After watching Okonkwo's arduous rise to prosperity and honor within his village, we follow him into seven years of exile. Although the exile is not directly related to his killing of that boy, the book presents the possibility that the god's displeasure over that act might be related to the event that does take him eventually into exile. During his exile, missionaries arrive in the area. The arrival of these missionaries and of a colonial government brings about the unraveling of social bonds and general chaos. In the face of those forces, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, to quote Yeats's The Second Coming. The book that began with Okonkwo's strength and honor ends with his shame. He commits suicide, and in the final paragraph of an illustrious book that has centered on him, a colonial district commissioner makes mental notes about how to use that suicide in a paragraph, perhaps, for his own book that he will write someday for a white audience back in England. Over the course of the book that we read, readers are confronted with Igbo aesthetics, oral culture, language, storytelling, beliefs, and worldviews, all of which have their own rationality, conveying a world that is by no means simply awaiting the completion of colonial arrival, but rather a world that is torn apart by it. I am especially delighted and excited that we're starting our conversation today with an extended reflection from a good friend of mine and one of the most astute and erudite people I know, Wamui Mbao. Wamui is a literary critic who teaches literary studies at Stellenbosch University, and he has a new book coming out this month called Years of Fire and Ash, South African Poems of Decolonization, in which he has edited together 50 years of protest poetry from South Africa. Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart is by any measure the most widely read African novel in the world. Its origin story, the story of the fortuitous misplacing of the manuscript and its entanglement with Heinemann, are things with which we are all well-versed because of the novel's fame. And like many great novels, it defines itself with an alluring and enigmatic opening line that immerses you in a world not your own. 
a conqueror was well known throughout the nine villages and even beyond, is a line that is routinely cited as one of the most memorable opening lines in fiction. The story that follows that line, of course, is on one level the story of a conqueror, a stoic clan leader and former wrestling hero who returns to his village after seven years, having been in exile for his part in a killing. When he returns, changes that the Christian missionaries and other white men have brought prove to be intolerable to him. From here, the novel swings inexorably towards tragedy. But on a broader level, Things Fall Apart is also about the tragic historical implications of Europe's late 19th century colonial incursion into Africa. And it is this duality of theme that is to some extent responsible for the enduring popularity of the text. But assessing whether Things Fall Apart is a great novel is on its surface a rather straightforward exercise. The novel is venerated in most quarters and it dutifully appears on lists as the African entrant or world contestant whenever great literature is being adjudged. It's a novel that, for good and bad reasons, has come to define what is often called African literature and is considered essential reading in many African studies and English literature courses. As a result of this, Things Fall Apart can hardly be dissociated from the emergence of the African novel in particular and modern African writing in general. This is why it is often interesting to me to see how, even in established and esteemed publications, rather lazy claims about the novel being one of the first works of fiction to represent African village life, or one of the first texts that represent African life from an African perspective, and other fantastically inexact claims tend to proliferate. Things Fall Apart is a singularly good text, but it is also a text that has birthed some rather annoying habits where the consumption of African literature is concerned, not least of which is an over-fondness for texts in which characters dispense aphoristic village wisdoms. The sort of claim to greatness that is often leveled upon a text like Things Fall Apart tend to rest on rather banal or superficial impressions of 20th century Western literary consumer habits. These are habits that may be Western even though they are in Czechoslovakia or Japan. And they are habits which tell you very little about how, say, an African novel might be read by Africans in Africa. And here it might be interesting to note that while Things Fall Apart has been rendered into over 50 languages, Igbo isn't one of them. Of course, it's also interesting to note here that there were African novels about colonial vandalism before Things Fall Apart. Thomas Mofolo's Shaka, Arar Glomo's An African Tragedy, Saul Plaki's Moody and Peter Abraham's Mind Boy, amongst others, are many examples in English literature, and this is of course to say nothing of the Francophone works by Kamara Leigh, Mongo Betty, and Ferdinand Oyono, amongst others. So making a claim of greatness for a novel that is tied to its being the first to appear is a bit like saying Neil Armstrong was the greatest person to walk on the moon. It tends to be rather specious. Similarly, canonization of things fall apart, which tend to be linked to the novel's adoption on high school syllabi, also fall rather flat with me. It is popular because its themes are easily teachable within the classroom context, and for a certain way of thinking about literature as a means to help us learn about ourselves, Things Fall Apart is an exemplar, but that doesn't necessarily make it good literature. The ascension of Things Fall Apart, then, has as much to do with the historical moment in which it emerged as it does the individual merits of the novel, which are, of course, many. At a time when the colonized world was changing irrevocably, and at a more accelerated pace than any time before in the early 20th century, things fall apart as a salvo against the heavy current of misinformation and mendacity about Africa. That it became the definitive African novel reflects much about Western society's unwillingness to recognize multiple forms of black greatness and unwillingness that has continued to the current day. So in that regard, we might think of things fall apart as marking Achebe, as the Chimamanda Adichie of his day, the reversal is deliberate. The wide circulation of his work allowed a wide readership to read about worlds that were not simply translated versions of their own. That is, rather than having to wonder, while sitting in Lusaka or Boston or Accra, what it was about Faulkner or Wolf that was pertinent to them, 
Black readers of that generation that were experiencing the first stages of decolonization could assess a text that placed them in a historical context in a meaningful way. It seems trite then to observe it, but the power of things fall apart lies not merely in its continued relevance, like many 20th century artifacts, it is unavoidably a product of its time, but because what of what it has to say about the fracturing of community at a particular time and place, and how that would come to influence the way in which we understand the endurance of a certain kind of damage in the world. Alicia, you grew up in West Africa. What was your experience of reading this novel? Well, it wasn't my first time coming to this novel. The first time I came to it, I was much younger, and I think I may have read it in America for the first time, actually, but it felt really, really familiar so that it didn't actually feel as innovative to me. I didn't catch or appreciate the aesthetic power of the way that Achebe introduces sort of fables and certain rhythms of speaking and some of the foods that are referenced and some of the incorporation of Igbo language, like these are things that just growing up in a multicultural context, you hear other languages and they're always interspersed. And growing up around a lot of Nigerians, our conversations were peppered with other languages. So it felt very natural to have this kind of intermixing of languages and aesthetics and rationalities. And now I haven't lived in Africa for a long time. And I've spent a lot of time immersed in novels doing (laughs) literary studies. And so I have more of a sense of the tradition of the English novel that Achebe was breaking into. And I can see a little bit better what was entailed in that drive that he had to represent literarily characters in a world that have their own logic, that have their own dignity, and that aren't just conforming to other conventions in really slim and narrow ways. So my experience of the novel has changed over time, I realized, this time through. And both times, I would say it was an experience of great pleasure. What about you, though, Erica? I first read this novel for university, actually. I didn't read it at school or when I was young. And I think I enjoyed it then. And I really, really enjoyed it this time around. It was so quick to read, which, okay, look, we've been reading some (laughs) long books this season so far. So that was a pleasure. But really, it just packed such a punch. And I was struck by a number of things in it, chiefly the voice of the narrator and the way that the narrator centers Igbo culture. So everything is in terms of calories, for example. The frame of reference is very Igbo not even Nigerian, like Igbo, and specifically this particular clan. And I guess I was struck by how much of a radical decentering that is of like a novel written in English. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about the kind of English that he used because he wrangles the language to make it sound different, to make it work differently and feel different. But on top of that, I think there's a complexity in the perspective as well of the narrator's voice. So the way that Achebe uses irony was something that I kept thinking about. I mean, he has this main character, Okonko, who's not actually all that sympathetic. And the story that is told is not one in which things fall apart because the British come in and colonize. That's sort of what happens in the third act. And yes, of course, things fall apart in a major way because that happens. But there's all kinds of fault lines that are going through this Mm -hmm. society and certainly through Okonko's life, like right from the beginning. There's issues around kind of patriarchy, his attitudes towards women that are presented in the novel. And I think that Achebe has been accused of being kind of sexist in his portrayal of women in this text. 
he was kind of indignant about it because his perspective, and actually the way that I feel about this novel too, is that this is so much filtered through Oconcourt's perspective. It's presenting the way that Oconcourt sees women. And there's this irony that's going the whole time. It's like it's presented to us so that we can see the shortcomings of Oconcourt's perspectives. The idea that weakness is associated with the feminine and that he wants to basically rid himself of anything that is weak. So here's a quotation from the novel. Even as a little boy, he had resented his father's failure and weakness. And even now, he still remembered how he had suffered when a playmate had told him that his father was Agbala. That was how Okonkwo first came to know that Agbala was not only another name for a woman, it could also mean a man who had taken no title. And so Okonkwo was ruled by one passion, to hate everything that his father Unoka had loved. One of those things was gentleness, and another was idleness, because his father is this uh, yeah, okay, so he's he's not a hard worker in terms of like laboring, but he's a, a he's a flute player, he's a musician. He seems to be a kind of a gentle soul in some ways. And Okonkwo's son Noye seems to be following in his grandfather's footsteps. But that's associated with womaniness and its weakness and Okonkwo hates it. Yeah, you raised a whole slew of really interesting points there. With respect to perspective, the book is told in a third person, past tense, omniscient point of view. That's the kind of narration we get, which is kind of the most authoritative narration you can get. This happened in the past, so says an objective distant voice, or presumably purportedly objective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's not told just in one person's perspective on the periphery of the world. And that is a kind of perspectival aesthetic recentering. I think one reason that didn't strike me the first time through reading it is that If you grow up in a place or if you live in a place, you don't have to be told this place matters. You live there. It matters. That's so true. (laughs) So that aesthetic is really interesting, I think, in terms of perspective. And it's not as though the narrative is limited to Okonkwo's view. No, no. Although we focus on him a lot and gain insights into it, it takes on this wider view. And then when it comes to Okonkwo, like you say, he's not presented. In fact, even life before the colonizers isn't presented in an idyllic way. Twins are taken out to the forest and left to die. And women bear the pain of this, of the loss Mm. of their own children. And that's not minimized in the book. No, no. And there's a great deal of fear. And just to build on what you were saying about Okonkwo, there's another quote that your quote sort of reminded me of, which is emphasizing his heavy-handed rule of his households and his treatment of his wives. His wives, the book says, especially the youngest, lived in perpetual fear of his fiery temper, and so did his little children. Perhaps down in his heart, Okonkwo was not a cruel man, but his whole life was dominated by fear, the fear of failure and of weakness. It was deeper and more intimate than the fear of evil and capricious gods and of magic, the fear of the forest and of the forces of nature, malevolent, red in tooth and claw. Okonkwo's fear was greater than these. It was not external, but lay deep within himself. It was the fear of himself, lest he should be found to resemble his father. So he's not a simply positive protagonist. And that fear of being seen to be weak is what causes him to strike down Ikemefuna. That's the young man that he essentially adopted. He's the one who strikes him down and kills him with his machete in the end. Mm. But it's because he doesn't want to be seen as weak that he does it. And then he like basically mourns but can't really admit to himself that he's mourning for two days afterwards. He can't eat. And there's all this stuff that's happening to him that he can't see and can't acknowledge. And I mean, I was reading this and thinking, wow, this stuff about hypermasculinity and not being able to be seen as weak and the stifled, stilted nature of a self that comes out of that way of being. I mean, this resonates in in the world that we live in. But the flip side of that is that, I mean, you have to have some kind of toughness, (laughs) emotional and psychological toughness to go to war. The same quality that could be seen as a weakness has aspects of strength that help his people to survive. And he's a hard worker, and that fear also drives him to become incredibly successful, to be able to turn things around and grow yams and establish himself within seven years of his exile. I thought about this a lot when I was thinking about Okonko's son, Noye, Mm. who he feels is is such a disappointment because he's like his grandfather. You know, there's so much about fathers and sons in this. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the mothers are always 
kind of peripherally there, but within this very patriarchal culture, they are kind of instrumentalized in a way. And I think that Achebe has that, there's a, that sense that this is a partial perspective. There's one moment where there's an old couple who, a married couple who die within hours of each other. And Okonko was saying, basically, like, this guy didn't rule his wife strongly enough. He always asked her opinion. And his friend, I think it's Obiarika, doesn't really say anything, but quietly dissents. This idea is that actually maybe some, some balance is necessary. Well, he, does, he says he was a strong warrior. And it's also said that they shared one mind from the start. I thought that both perspectives were included a little more strongly than that. You're right. I remember that now. Yes, he was a strong warrior. And he also shared one mind with this wife. And yeah. so there's that, there's space for that. Actually, the way that Okonko is, is not necessarily the way that the culture is entirely. But back to Noye, the son who becomes captivated by the Christian stories that the missionaries start telling, the ones that look at the fears and the terrors of Igbo culture and religion, aspects of it, directly in the face and say, no, this is not right. So there's a quotation I want to read here. It was not the mad logic of the Trinity that captivated him. It was the poetry of the new religion, mm. something felt in the marrow. The hymn about brothers who sat in darkness and in fear seemed to answer a vague and persistent question that haunted his young soul, the question of the twins crying in the bush, and the question of Ikemefuna, who was killed. He felt a relief within as the hymn poured into his parched soul, the words of the hymn were like the drops of frozen rain melting on the dry plate of the panting earth. You know, there's that feeling that actually there was dryness mm -hmm. for certain people. There wasn't space for someone like Noye to be a, a fully human person in his surroundings. Yeah, and when the missionaries come in, although they're associated with this breaking of the social fiber where the clan kind of dissolves into chaos, they also represent a real challenge to certain aspects of the worldview that is represented in this book that maybe are counterproductive. For instance, the missionaries are given land to set up in the evil forest, which is the place that everyone avoids, where bodies are disposed of that are sort of untouchable. As the book says, every clan and village had its evil forest. In it were buried all those who died of the really evil diseases, like leprosy and smallpox. It was also the dumping ground for the potent fetishes of great medicine men when they died. An evil force was, therefore, alive with sinister forces and powers of darkness. It was such a force that the rulers of Mbanta gave to the missionaries. And Mbanta is actually, to go back to the theme of mother, it's the motherland in which Okonko takes refuge when he's exiled. So I do think there's a theme of women and mothers that's a little stronger, maybe, than just being peripheral, which I'll come back to. But to stay on focus with this point right now, there's this sense where the missionaries come in and they're given this land that they're expected to die because they start building on. And instead, they don't die. And the missionaries start saving twins from death. And they don't die as a result of that. And then they start including outcasts in their ranks. And they treat them like equals. And all of these things, I'm not glossing in a more positive way. That's how the book presents it. So even though the book is presenting a breakdown of social fabric, there's good reason to look at this and wonder, well, what's happening here where there are beliefs that are being disproven? or there are kinds of patterns that are being broken that actually lead to people living <laughs> that were, would have been condemned to death in the novel. <laughs> so that sense in which Achebe is willing to, on the one hand, present a critique of the missionaries, but on the other hand, present these phenomenal changes to the culture or challenges to a worldview through them and through the fact that they simply don't die yeah. in taking on all of these forces that are depicted in the book as evil. I think that's part of what makes his book interesting. Yeah, there's great complexity. Yeah, because he's he's not just disavowing it. And then yeah. on the topic of mothers, when Okonkwo takes refuge during his exile in his motherland, he's very despondent about this. And I believe it's his uncle, Uchendu, yeah. decides he wants to address this. And so he goes and he sets up a meeting in which he challenges Okonkwo's despondency. Can you tell me, he says, Okonkwo, why is it that one of the commonest names we give our children is Neka, or Mother is Supreme? We all know that a man is the head of the family and his wives do his bidding. A child belongs to its father and his family and not to its mother and her family. 
A man belongs to his fatherland and not to his motherland. So this is all sounding very much like women are peripheral. <laughs> and yet we say, Ineka, mother is supreme. Why is that? And he goes on to say, a man belongs to his fatherland when things are good and life is sweet. But when there is sorrow and bitterness, he finds refuge in his motherland. Your mother is there to protect you. She is buried there. That is why we say that mother is supreme. And he goes on to also challenge Okonkwo's self-indulgent <laughs> despair you think you are the greatest sufferer in the world? Do you know how many children I have buried? Children I begot in my youth and strength, 22. I did not hang myself and I am still alive. If you think you are the greatest sufferer in the world, ask my daughter Akweni, how many twins she has born and thrown away. Have you not heard this song they sing when a woman dies? And again, the woman focus. For whom is it well? For whom is it well? There is no one for whom it is well. I have no more to say to you. So there's definitely that counter voice incorporated in. There is yes. that aspect of marginalization, but there's also this counter voice, partly through the women, but also through this uncle who's saying, you, you're spending seven years here. And I think like it's the worst thing in the world. We are giving you hospitality. Have a little sense of perspective. They welcome him so well too, so generously. I love that you read a chunk of that because what really struck me as well in the language of this book is the way that people address each other with great care, but also they speak in poetic images and in stories and proverbs, of course, you know, that famous quotation that proverbs are the palm oil with which words are eaten. I mean, it's so beautiful. <laughs> There's just these lovely, lovely lines. But all of those stories about the little bird who challenged his chi or the mosquito who fell in love with the ear. Noye likes those stories. He likes the stories that women tell. Hmm. But they are the images through which the people interpret their lives. And I really love that. I loved how Achebe incorporates that in so that you find yourself being brought in to a way of thinking and a way of speaking and a way of interacting with others, a way of talking to others. But yes, the mosquito who fell in love with the ear. Ooh, and I think it was Okonkwo who actually remembered that story. So even though he disparages yes, his son for loving these stories, they're sort of in the fiber of even of himself. And I, I think there's something about that. That's how Achebe is making the novel different. The novel, which is this form that is very European. He's kind of Africanizing it in some way by incorporating African oral traditions, ways of thinking and of speaking into the fabric of the text. I just so enjoyed reading this this time. I found it short, punchy, neatly organized, part one, part two, part three. Yeah. Part one where you're introduced to everything and you're kind of welcomed into the world. Part two, where things change because Okonkwo is exiled. And then part three, where he comes back, but things have changed at home mm. and how he adapts to that. The book says, the clan was like a lizard. If it lost its tail, it soon grew another to describe the changing of the clan <laughs> and the way that things just kind of fill in in his absence. Yeah, I love that. I did feel for Okonkwo because I feel like he's this kind of stunted person. From the beginning, who nevertheless excels in his world, but the world is changing around him mm. and he lacks the ability, even the psychological tools to adapt to that new reality. So all of these plans he has for himself to excel and to take all the titles, you know, to move up in, in society. Well, the missionaries coming and the changing of the social fabric, the disintegration of it in certain key respects makes that impossible. And so then he's left with this kind of question, like, what is the meaning of my life? So eventually, one of the outcasts who'd been taken in by the Christians, who then becomes one of the most zealous, right? There's an interesting thing that this novel does with who becomes a Christian, who starts moving up in that world. It's mm -hmm. all the people who were downtrodden and didn't quite fit into Igbo society as it had been initially. Yes, initially, it's it's those people. And then some more respectable people also join, shockingly. Yeah, that's very shocking, because, like, what do they have to gain? I mean, so, you know, Achebe is quite canny about that, too, talking about the social dynamics involved. But after a very zealous convert, does he kill an Igugu, or does he unmask the Igugu? 
He unmasks him, and which is yeah. killing. He unmasks the agugu, which is one of the the kind of personifications of the ancestors. And then Okonko and a band of men go to burn down the church that has been built, the headquarters of the missionaries, basically. And then he finds himself falling into this new district commissioner, British ruled by Queen Victoria governmental system where now suddenly he's being sentenced to things and having his head shaved and just being totally humiliated. Like the world has changed and he doesn't have a space to survive within it. That's why like he gets to go home because they pay a fine. And then we we lose him in the story, and then we go into the district commissioner's point of view. So after he's released, then a group of men are gathering to try to decide what to do in response. The people who don the masks to become the Igwugu are all sort of higher up in their shared village. And when they're imprisoned, the district commissioner actually says to treat them with respect. But the messengers beat them and whip them and insult them and humiliate them. Yeah. So they go home having been treated by, you know, these people out of nowhere in terrible ways. And then they're going, they assemble to decide what to do. And Okonkwo has come with his machete. He thinks they should go to war. That's his sort of nature and his response. Which, to be fair, is not a bad idea because <laughs> there, there's no other hope for them. And they've just been treated in such humiliating ways. And, and messengers try to pass through the path where they're meeting and... They won't move, and that's when Okonkwo turns and kills one of the messengers. And he knows he's going to be taken down, presumably knows that something's going to happen to him for yeah. this. And then he kills himself after that. Yes. That's when we sort of lose him in the narrative and the perspective shifts to the district commissioner. I mean, the ending of this novel is so powerful. It's so frustrating and effective because we suddenly shift into this white British colonial district commissioner's point of view, this estranged outsider perspective. He's this kind of amateur ethnographer. And then we find out that Okonkwo has hanged himself. And then at the very end, we learn that the district commissioner, when he's reflecting about his book and how he'll include this as a scene, we learned this. He had already chosen the title of the book after much thought. And this is the title. The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. And it's just like, <gasps> it's so diminutive. It's so... Not even so diminutive because it's more than that. Yeah. It's a humiliation in itself. So he says, as he walked back to the court, he thought about that book. Every day brought him some new material. The story of this man who had killed a messenger and hanged himself would make interesting reading. One could almost write a whole chapter on him. Perhaps not a whole chapter, but a reasonable paragraph at any rate. How different from the whole book that we read about Okonkwo. It ends on that horrible, dehumanizing title. Just the pacification of the primitive tribes of the Lower Niger. I mean, it's... Oh, it's so... And then you close the book. Hmm. I think that ending is a masterstroke. It brings us back to the place of African stories within world culture. We see this rich and complex culture that we've been enmeshed in for this whole novel and, and centered in become the thing that it was in certain, like, say, British ethnographic books or, mm. or history books or ways of speaking about the world. Mm. And the fact that we've read this entire narrative just shows up what poverty there is in that perspective at the end. We interviewed Terry Ochaga about Things Fall Apart. Terry lectures on world literatures in English at Royal Holloway University of London. She specializes in first-generation Nigerian writing, the history and literary representations of elite colonial education in Africa, and colonial whiteness. She is the author of Achebe and Friends at Umwahia, The Making of a Literary Elite, and she also is the author of a short history of Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. 
So to kick things off, Terry, we're very interested to know when did you first read Chinua Tepe and what made you want to study his life and work? So I lived in Nigeria between the ages of seven and 16. My father is Nigerian, my mother is Spanish. I first encountered Chinua Tepe at primary school. I think I was eight at the time hmm. and in the weirdest of ways, really. So we had this sort of reader that we had for our English classes. And so there were lots of comprehension exercises. And one of these comprehension exercises came from Arrow of God. And it's that episode, which I think, um, in retrospect, wasn't a great thing to select for a children's reader. So it's this episode where Ezulu's son, Ezulu is the protagonist of Arrow of God. So his son, Obika, He's just witnessed his sister coming back home because she's been physically abused by her husband. So he decides to go to the man's house, beat him up, (laughs) bring him home and place him under a tree so he'll be crushed by the fruit. I remember being very intrigued and kind of (laughs) troubled by the whole thing and saying, I want to know how it ends. Did he get crushed by the fruit or did he not? And that was the first time I encountered Chino Achebe, but not the first time I read a whole novel. That was my first year of secondary school, and it wasn't Things Fall Apart. It was Chica and the River, which was a children's story. And I did get to read the rest of the novels, the more well-known ones, later on in secondary school, but that was my first encounter. Thinking about the incredible global stature of Things Fall Apart, can you tell us a bit about how it came to be published in the Heinemann African Writers series? Because that seems to have something to do with its place in world literature. First of all, I think there's a misconception. I get that from my students a lot because I do teach Things Fall Apart to first-year students. And there's this sort of sense that, oh, it must have been because he was an African writing when no one else was, or oh, he's the first African to write back. And that isn't the case. But I think what was so great about it, and I think what projected it in that way, was, first of all, what he did with language. So the English in Things Fall Apart is, I don't know whether this might sound loaded, but English that's dramatically correct, that's just English instead of pidgin English or broken English or any other sort of variety of English. But it is quite unfamiliar, quote-unquote, because it's made to kind of convey the beauty, the philosophy, the cadences of the Igbo language. So that ability to kind of use the English language in that way, um, in a way that's actually beautiful, well, 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 the process sometimes we been said to be simple, and it is, it is deceptively simple, but that that sort of beauty of the language and conveying these ways of thinking and these ways of life that are so alien to the West, I think was the great thing about it. And it was the thing that inspired all the other writers who eventually got published in the African Writers Series. Another thing that's not really been discussed enough when when talking about Achebe is, you know, there's also this perception that, oh, he's writing back to Conrad's Heart of Darkness or Joyce Carrier's Mr. Johnson, which is true in a way. But when you read Things Fall Apart and when you read Achebe's work in its entirety, it's this very intimate relationship with Western literature more more broadly. I mean, you can see Thomas Hardy in, in Things Fall Apart if you look carefully enough. I do think sometimes the ways in which it's presented kind of overdetermines the reception of the work. But I think that before Achebe, there hadn't been any other African writer who had that competence with the language, such competence that he was able to mold it in that way. And also no African writer that had that intimate relationship with English literature and and the novel as as a genre and was able to bend that genre to actually convey this story, which is also inflected. And again, this is not very well known by African pre-colonial art forms and their representation of colonial whiteness. So I think it was that whole static complexity of the work that discerning readers, discerning critics were able to see. So when it was first published, it wasn't in the African Writers Series that didn't exist. I never wrote this book without really thinking about a publisher. 
He sent the manuscript to London. The manuscript got lost. There's this whole story where the people who were supposed to type it didn't because he came from Africa and they didn't send it back. And then he, as he put it, he got thinner and thinner worrying about it. But then he had to ask one of his colleagues who was British to please find out what was going on with the manuscript. And she was able to threaten them. And they then sent one copy of the manuscript instead of the three that he had paid for. He went to England first, I think, and gave the manuscript to a man called Gilbert Phelps, who read it and really liked it. And that's when he took it back and got it typed and this whole uh, missing manuscript thing happened. And after he had corrected it, then these Phelps undertook um, the task of finding a publisher. And for a while, he wouldn't find one because everyone said, why would we even publish something that comes from Africa? Until he sent it to Heinemann and Heinemann didn't want it either. But at least they were open enough to ask a man called Donald McRae, who was a lecturer at LSE. I think he was a specialist in economics or politics or something like that. Nothing to do with literature. But he said, oh, he's been, he's been in Africa. He'll, he'll know something about it. And then he read it and then he said, oh, this is the best book that's been written since the Second World War. And that's how they decided to publish it. And it was published on 17 June 1958. So I think the fact that all these writers in Nigeria, Atebe's contemporaries at the University College Ibadan started saying, oh, I can get published too. I really want to write my own novel. So this started this whole sort of literary revolution in Nigeria that spread beyond and that's when the African Writers Series was created in 1961 by Alan Hill, who wanted to make it like penguin paperbacks for Africa. And, and that's how it all started. So Things for the Patch was republished as number one. That's absolutely fascinating. You've already touched on a little bit, but I wonder if you could tell us a little more about this reception in Nigeria and then in Africa more broadly, because I see authors from around the continent actually speaking about the legacies of Achebe and how they have informed their own writings or given them courage to write in certain ways. So what is the significance of Things Fall Apart, in particular Achebe more broadly in African literature? Well, I think more, more so than in African literature, and I'll talk about African literature in a minute, I think it's also his cultural relevance as a sort of icon. Being a child in Nigeria at the time that I was living there, everyone knew who Achebe was, whether they had read the novels or not. He was an icon of sorts. But I think that transcended his work. In terms of his literary significance, outside of that sort of secondary school or grassroots kind of level, first I'm going to talk about Nigeria first, and then I'm going to branch out to other parts of Africa. In Nigeria, at least, he was this foundational figure that everyone wanted to, I don't, I don't like to use the word imitate, but he just kind of opened this world to all these writers who did have it in them, many cases, and that's what my first book explores, to actually, you know, express themselves creatively. But they didn't think it was possible because of their own positioning in the world. So he showed them what could be done. So they could now tap into the same resources, the same sort of background, the same sorts of proverbs, the same sort of world to kind of create their own narrative. Wale Shoyinka is a world apart. He staged his first play on the very same year that Things Fall Apart was published. So he wasn't imitating or being prompted in any way about that publication. But I can think right now of at least seven or eight Nigerian writers who emerged at that point. I mean, even writers who were writing prior to Achebe started modifying their writing to try to do that whole linguistic tra transliteration thing that Achebe does. So the impact was huge. And after that generation came many other generations. I think Achebe's position as the father of modern African literature, as he's called, and I think it is a it is a good label. I mean, I've never really questioned that. I just always say you've got to look at all these other writers, you know, and not just see them as his sons or imitators. But he did have this sort of status where he enabled, was a key figure in, in things like the Macro African um, Literature Conference in 1962, 
where I think Ngugi Wapiongo was a guest, and then that led to his writing his first novel. Then also being the first editor of the African Writers Series meant that he had a key role in trying to harnessing all this literary talent in Africa. And I think he just had hands in all those pies that emerged after things fall apart. Mm, that's fascinating. So we ask every one of our guests this. Do you think that this book, Things Fall Apart, is one of the books of the 20th century? And why does this book still matter globally? I think it's one of the books of the 20th century because of the ways in which it just opened doors of literary canonicity to writers from formerly colonized nations that wouldn't have found their way in otherwise. I do have to say that I think Things Fall Apart alone didn't do that. When thinking about Things Fall Apart, we've got to conjoin it with the impact of an essay that Achebe wrote on Joseph Conrad entitled An Image of Africa, Racism in Heart of Darkness, and its own impact. I think when Achebe first made an impact in the sort of, well, it was first reviewed by critics and so on, and, and all these African writers were following his path. Since Wopat was being read in, in departments of anthropology um, and African history and things like that, not really in English departments, it wasn't until this essay was published, which is one of the most polemical essays ever to have been written, I think, in the realm of literary criticism, did English departments start to, well, well it's, it's actually in the Norton edition of, of Heart of Darkness. You can't really teach Heart of Darkness without referring to Achebe's essay where he claims that Joseph Conrad was, first of all, he said a bloody racist, but then it was kind of softened and it was a thoroughgoing racist. So I think it was things fall apart, but that essay put it on the English literary map and allow that sort of opening up of the doors to other African writers writing in English. I think that's one thing that obviously has such a seismic impact on, you can't really think about literature in the 20th century without talking about things fall apart. It is obviously still relevant. You've just got to think about all the movements that, that have emerged and that are still going strong in recent years, Black Lives Matter, all the decolonizing the curriculum movements show that despite the fact that many years have passed since 1958, unfortunately, colonial discourse still exists in, in, in permutated ways. It doesn't manifest itself in the way that it did back then, but I think it still permeates our society. So the work is still relevant today. The question is, how should it be marketed? How should it be taught? In what ways can its full potential be tapped into? Because I think the ways in which it's presented sometimes have been a bit of an enemy to you know, the sort of things that the book could accomplish. Teaching the novel and um, witnessing students' encounters with the novel. If you present this novel to students in ways that kind of exorcise it. Oh, look at this African who's reading this book and is writing back to empire. There, there's already a source of burden that it's made to carry that some students or people who might well have some not very positive thoughts about Africa and African realities might, you know, feel alienated from the work and then kind of read it as this sort of, oh, well, oh, yes, an African novel, interesting. And then they, they then start focusing on questions relating to um, human sacrifice or sacrifice of twins and um, sexism in the book, as opposed to its artistic merits, obviously, and also its potential to, well, the ways in which it actually interrogates this sort of discourse. So, yeah, the novel is still relevant, there's no doubt. But it is, I, I always worry, and this might sound pessimistic, that if it's presented, and I'm not saying by any Africanists or specialists in post-colonial literatures, other people who don't really know the context, who don't really know the work other than, oh, diversity and inclusion, let's get things fall apart to shake things up. I think when it's taught in that way, I think it, it can actually achieve the contrary of what it sets out to do. So teachers of things fall apart worldwide, <laughs> be mindful of how you present the novel. <laughs> if you wanted to do any good in the world. 
Terry, thank you so much for such a detailed and meaty set of responses. Thank you. So, Erica, after all that we've heard and read, what do you think? Is this book one of the books of the century? Yes. I don't have a doubt in my mind. I just say yes, yes, yes. The place of this book in not only African, but world literature is kind of monumental. The way that it engages with the Western or Anglo-European canon in really canny ways, from the title, Things Fall Apart, from mm. Yeats, to that section that you quoted with Nature, Red and Tooth and Claw, that's Tennyson, I think, to the more implicit engagement with Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which Achebe later says he wrote Things Fall Apart as a kind of a response to Conrad's vision of these subhuman, non-human African people on the banks of the Congo River in that novella. This is a novel that powerfully intervenes in a tradition, brings in traditional Igbo, maybe we could say African if we feel confident enough to generalize, ways of thinking and of doing literature or orature, perhaps, telling stories and making meaning and mashes it up with the English novel and creates something that gives writers and readers new ways of seeing the world and themselves and new ways of speaking about those things as well. So yes, I just say yes. What about you? I also say yes, but perhaps a little less resoundingly. Hmm. I am persuaded by the points that you make. In addition to which, this is a novel that's on, it's sort of become canonized in a practical way. It's on curriculum yeah. in universities around the world. Its significance historically is widely recognized. Numerous African novelists speak about the way in which they first encountered this book as gatekeeping, as opening something new for them, a new opportunity, a new mode of representation for them. It's not just doing that for Nigerians. Yeah. So I think those historical aspects are really powerful. And you touched on some of the aesthetic aspects that are really powerful in terms of arguments for its place on that list. I'm not sure how to analyze it aesthetically completely. It's not overly self-conscious. It's not overly burdened with formal innovation in a way that sometimes can be easy to associate with, wow, this is a real literary work. Look at all the formal drama that's going on What, here. like the golden notebook? Like the golden notebook, which I said no to. So in some ways, it feels so readable, so accessible that I almost mm. feel like, is enough happening aesthetically here? What if it weren't African? What about these elements? And is that what should determine that this is on the list? So those are the questions about criteria for being a book of the century that it raises in my mind. But I do still come out on the yes side, as you do. I think these are very important questions to be raising. What does it take to be a book of the century? How good do you have to be? Do you have to be representative of something specific? And if so, what? More traditionalist arguments for a canon at times argue for something that preserves what is best of human thought and feeling, the best of what has been thought and said, that kind of sentiment. That can be best in terms of the aesthetic way in which it has been thought and said. It can be best in any number of ways. It doesn't necessarily mean the most noble thoughts and feelings. But I do think that there is something that stands out in what's thought and said here. And partly it's due to the nuance of the representations, that it's not just an easy idealization of one side. And I think there is something of lasting value to it that will continue to have value for historical reasons, but also for the way in which it dignifies perspectives and that it also complicates. Well, we are grateful that things did not fall apart this episode, but rather amidst the whirling gyres of history, the center of this podcast continues to hold. Yes. <laughs>
We'd like to thank Wamui Mbao and Terry Ochiaga for talking to us for this episode. All original music was made by me. Fantastic. Thank you, Erica. On the next episode in two weeks' time, we're staying in Nigeria. We'll be reading Buchi Emacheta's The Bride Price. Want to read along? As ever, we hope that you will. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or the episode. You can read more about our podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter. We're at literatepodcast. Or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you like this episode, another way that we'd love to hear from you is if you could rate it, add a review, and click subscribe on whatever you use to listen to your podcasts and tell friends who you think might be interested about it. Word of mouth is a really powerful way for us to grow our reading community. We also have a bookshop.org list on our website that you can use to find and buy the books that we're talking about really, really easily. And most importantly, from independent bookstores. So as ever, please support your local library and independentbookshop.org.